Welcome back to the show. Today's episode is with graphic designer David Carson. Does his name sound familiar? Perhaps his work, however, you absolutely know. And uh, highly influential graphic designer, both in the surf world and outside. He began his work at Transworld Skateboarding Magazine, which led to work at Surfer Magazine, who um, then supported the short-lived but very much revered side project, Beach Culture Magazine, Ray Gun Magazine. David has had wild success outside of the surf world with clients from Audi to Armani, Yale University. He's done album cover art for Nine Inch Nails. He did a TED Talk back in 2003 when the list of TED speakers was very short and among the very elite performers in their field. I was connected with David Carson through Album Surfboards, who is launching a collaboration project. It's, of course, their surfboards adorned with his artwork. They'll be launching that collaboration at the Boardroom Show this weekend. And guess what? David Carson will be there. I've published a guest list that'll be doing meet and greets in my booth, and David Carson is joining that illustrious list. He'll be there on Saturday from about 1.30 onward, maybe for an hour or so. So swing by. He's going to bring some posters to sign. And then also, in the past week, Greg Martz from the Waterman's Guild has confirmed his attendance. He's going to be coming by on Sunday around noon, and then he'll be sharing time in the booth with Josh Martin, Dave Parmenter. Um, Those guys both have their boards glassed at the Waterman's Guild. So that's the connection. They're all really good friends. So both of the days, Saturday and Sunday, are packed with great people. The tagline for this show is Conversations About Surfing. And it is, it is a conversation between myself and the, the guest or the co-host, but through social media and the comments section on our website, we've been able to embrace your role in these conversations. And this weekend at the Boardroom Show is going to be the first chance to actually give you, the listener, the opportunity to FaceTime with all of these guests that I've had on the show. So do not miss that. It's at the Del Mar Fairgrounds in San Diego. Tickets are only 10 bucks. Um, I think they're 10 bucks in advance if you buy them on boardroomshow.com. 15 at the door. Either way, great value. Everybody's going to be there. As you know, this show is listener supported through a PayPal link on surfsplendorpodcast.com, which, by the way, I picked a name at random for that surfboard giveaway that we did last month. There's websites devoted. You just copy and paste names, click a button, and it randomly generates a name for you. So, picked a winner. Isho Thomas Sweet is his name. He won that board. He has a great name, and uh, he's been in contact with Jeff Timponi. And I've lined up additional board builders. We're going to do another uh, giveaway next month, so you can look forward to that. At any rate, this show is listener-supported, and it's made possible through partnerships with brands like Spy, the sunglass company that we've been talking about. They've loaded me up with stickers, uh, Spy-branded flasks, not hydro flasks, but alco flasks, like old school flasks for booze, uh, and a bunch of other cool spy gear that you simply cannot buy anywhere. They've given me all this stuff to hand out for free at the boardroom show. So swing by, mention this, and I'll load you up with free gear. Thanks to Spy. You know about their pioneer technology of the happy lens. It's a super cool product. I'll tell you more about that at the end of the show. But until then, If you ever need sunglasses or snow goggles, purchase them on spyoptic.com and then use my promo code podcast. 
You will love the shades and you will support this show. Thank you for doing that. All right, David Carson. We recorded this conversation in his garage studio in Manhattan Beach, California. You'll hear the occasional car coming down the alley uh, and this weird periodic beep in the garage. I'm still not sure what that was. Anyway, David really brought his A-game and candor to this conversation. So I'm grateful for that, and I'm glad to be able to share this with you. So without further ado, I'm David Scales for Surf Splendor, and here's my conversation with David Carson. took his place and bravely cried, you to consult nor for advice or anything like that but i've been doing the podcast for over four years now and i feel confident in the quality of the content this audio medium but i've only realized in the last year how important and how lacking my visuals have been so it's like the audience has grown strictly through word of mouth but it's ephemera you know it's audio and it's just it's difficult to share. So I found that it shared, it's been shared through word of mouth, which has been great. But now to kind of make that next leap, it needs visuals that represent the quality of the content. And I've now invested the last year. It's like now I'm working with a couple of, um, thankfully listeners who have stepped up and they're graphic designers and artists and kind of designed a logo intentionally. We always had one, but it was lame logo um working with an illustrator now who's doing portraits of show guests and things like that so when matt mentioned you to me i knew who you were and i was like i have much better context for this conversation because of this last year that i've actually acknowledged the limitations i've had from without having proper visual representation so I have a much better context for this conversation than I would have had a year ago. Interesting, yeah. So, and, and I would have a lot to say if, if I was looking at some of the stuff you're also looking at. And um, yeah, I, th- I think it's a huge opportunity to get more people intrigued. Like, <clears throat> you know, I would say I'm I was a visual person and, and your website is new to me, like brand new. And I have to think if there was a visual representation out there, I would have picked it up somewhere. Mm-hmm. And, and then that would have led me to it. And I would have found this amazing episode. About, and I mean like that. Um, so, yeah, I'm not, I certainly couldn't tell you what your logo is or what it looks like or how it's spelled or anything. Right. Which is <laughs> so, disappointing to me. And that's huge. And that's, it's huge. There's no reason not to get those people. Well, I realize that even if I have a devote, especially with surfing, I would say visually driven. If I would, even if I have a devout listener who's passionate about an episode and shares it with a friend, they can only tell them about it. You know, like if they send them the link to the website, the website does nothing to capture that person. No, that's a huge missed opportunity there. I'm glad you're addressing it. I'm I'm working on it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, um, who would have, I could back way up, and I, I was telling somebody, I think maybe Album, when they first mentioned to me that we might be doing this, I thought, God, you know, who would have guessed? Nobody could have imagined uh, 
10, 20, whatever years ago that radio basically would make such a comeback. I mean, Crazy, right? Hello. I know. <laughs> you know. There's been rumblings of print coming back and people mailing letters and this is yeah. Yeah, little rumblings, but, but radio coming back in a huge way. I certainly didn't hear anything about that or see it coming. And I mean, of course, it's not called radio, but no. it basically is, you know, but no visual. So, you know, what's um, what I have found resonates with people is just story. Yeah. So it's like old timey radio where people before TV, people sat around the radio and listened to news, <laughs> you know, to, yeah, those classic pictures of the family you know, yeah. leaning in and. And, and trying to, they would have tried to imagine what it looked like, what they were hearing, and probably what the person looked like, and all of that. And but, so that exactly is engaging a part of your brain mm-hmm. that visuals strip away. Visuals, uh, if you're watching TV, <laughs> they give you the visuals, but with radio, you're forced to imagine. Yeah. And so that's an interesting element. I remember going to a, an exhibition in London at, I think, Contemporary Art Museum or something there, and... And when you walked in, they gave you a headphone, and as you walked to each piece of art, you were told what was going on and what you should be seeing and experiencing. And I got to one one drawing or painting or whatever and took it off. I said, no, I don't want to be told what I'm, what I'm supposed to feel, what was intended. I just want to experience it. And I, I took it off and watched everybody else and said, mm, okay, yeah, I should be happy or, or, or whatever they were being told. I thought, no, no, I want to experience this for myself. That's a really interesting example. Yeah. Interesting. Well, um, and I could, it makes me think of the probably Beach Culture magazine done through Surfer Publications and then later Reagan magazine. One of the criticisms, especially with Reagan, people would say, well, that magazine is just for designers and artists and illustrators and, you know. Uh, it's not a real music magazine, and I said, no, that's fine. I'll take all those people as 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 an audience because I know I'm getting the the people whose favorite group is on the cover. Or mm-hmm. I'm getting those those people. I know I'm getting the music people. If I can bring in other people, absolutely, I'll take them. You know, if people are picking it up to see what photography is being used or what illustrators or any of that, that's that's fine. I'll take them. <laughs> um. I'm curious to kind of launch into the conversation when people ask you what you do for a living. How do you answer them? Well, you know, I rarely get asked that. I, I know, isn't that funny? I don't think anybody ever asks anybody. But imagine know. somebody asks you for a living. Well, I like to say I just have a graphic designer, you know, and, graphic designer. Uh, yeah, and uh, and just and it's kind of. There's part of me that likes if they have no idea what that means or entails or maybe my role in that field or whatever. And, but that's basically it. Yeah, I was, I'm a graphic designer. You've had a lot of different job titles. Um, graphic designer certainly one of them. Art director, creative director, artist. What is your ideal job for kind of this phase that you're at in your life? What does your ideal job look like? Well, you know, I've kind of had it, and I continue to have it. uh, I've been real fortunate to get a lot of projects that are, you know, it rarely feels like work to me. It's fun. It's, uh, you know, I make my living from my hobby. I've been fortunate to be able to do that. So, you know, I remember when I first started in the field, there was, it was called graphic design, of course, but the era before me, people were called commercial artists, and... 
and you never wanted to be called that as a especially as a starting graphic designer no you weren't a commercial artist you were a graphic designer that was much cooler and much more something and then later they started saying graphic artists and that still wasn't it was kind of corny compared to uh, graphic design, but now I've kind of come around to thinking what I do is probably more graphic art in a sense because I'm working with illustration and drawing and photography and arranging things that sometimes other people have done the original thing and then I'm moving it around. Or, um, But yeah, I, I guess the main thing for me is it's just something I'm drawn to, passionate about. don't have to force myself to go to work or watch the clock or any of that and uh it's worked out good (laughs) is is there a simple way that you could define quality graphic design well probably not a simple way for me it's work that moves me that feels personal feels like there was a person behind it not just a computer or a program um looks like some something was brought to it that uh Again, a computer or program couldn't bring to it. There's a personal element and something that attracts me emotionally where I go, whoa, that's, there's, there's something going on there. That, that to me is, it has to have that <coughs> to, to be any category of, of good design, I guess. We'll get into your work history in a minute, but before we do, I was curious to hear how you got involved in surfing. I know you grew up in Corpus Christi. Um, no, it's funny. I was born in Corpus Christi and there from zero to six months. Oh. And people say, oh, you're from Texas. I, well, I never really thought of it like that. <laughs> but uh, I learned, I surfed, the first time I ever surfed was at Rat Beach in uh, Torrance. And I remember because me and a buddy were out there trying to figure out surfing and somebody paddled over to us at Rat Beach. This would have been in the 60s. And I not know if we had our membership cards with us. And was, no, no, we didn't even know you were supposed to have them. Yeah, we got So we, we didn't obviously have ours, and we went in. <laughs> That's <laughs> thought, amazing. Really? Rat Beach is a terrible wave. It's, it's probably as bad as Manhattan Beach. <laughs> we bought it, so even back then. Um, so but then, was that just a ploy to get yeah, you out of the water? Yeah, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah, just a ploy to get us out of the water. I'm gonna, we were, I'm gonna use that. Do, do, <laughs> do. I mean, it was in the '60s, and we were two harmless kids learning to surf and junk surf. And I don't know if we had our membership cards. <laughs> that's so classic. <laughs> that was my intro to the sport. But uh, soon after that first episode, we moved to Cocoa Beach, Florida, where my dad was in charge of the. Uh, first thing that landed on the moon there. It's called the Surveyor Program. And uh, we were there as most of the town was there just for the space program. It was kind of a ghost town turned into a boom town and went back to a ghost town and now it's a boom town again. But So we were there just for that. And I found going into Cocoa Beach High School, which was 7th through 12th grade, that I had a surprising amount of clout just because I was from California. And I, uh, and I had surfed like, literally once, but, but surfing was just taking off on the East Coast, and um, uh, that's, that's where I learned, Okay, Beach, Florida. And the nice thing looking back to that is everybody did everything. Everybody surfed, everybody played football, everybody went to the dances, everybody did everything in that community. And I really 
years later, returning back to California, missed that dramatically. It's like, wow, all of a sudden when I got back here, we had you know these, all these groups and they all hated each other and they didn't talk. And it was just like, whoa, what is this? So it's still something I really appreciate about that experience. I'm always curious, what were your influences at that time? Like, which had you, did you have access to magazines, film? Who were the local pro surfers that you looked up to? Who were the board builders? Wow, Do you remember yeah, any of that uh, stuff? So, all of it. Are you kidding? Like it was yesterday. Um, oh, where do I even start? <laughs> well, we got, you know, then it was Surfer, Surfing Magazine, and a couple of East Coast ones came and went. But those were literally our, our Bibles, and you waited uh, one every two months, and you memorized those things. And, uh, you know, I could still pick up any magazine from the 60s and blindly turn to a page and tell you that caption. Uh, without any question, you know, I see these sites where they print old photos and who is it? And I could, I could always give them the caption, oh, well, that's so-and-so. Um, but that came from being intrigued with surfing. Well, intrigued is putting it mildly, living and breathing it as a young kid. You know, at 14, I was writing a column for the Cocoa Beach newspaper about surfing. Um, I taught surfing for the YMCA at 14. I was, you know, and I only started at 12, which is now it seems kind of late. But um, so the whole school, for sure, and it may be bigger, was was just fascinated in getting into this whole surf craze. And it's hard to, there's such a, encompassing all-encompassing thing I remember all all the people and all the guys I looked up to and but it would have been uh, <clears throat> ones you may have heard of probably Gary Proper, Claudia Cajuns, Bruce Faluzzi, Mike Tabling they were all I have an older brother and they were more his age but so they were all always in the house or around or swapping boards or all that stuff and there's a slew of, of other ones as well I have a interesting history with Dick Catree, the shaper back there. And, mm -hmm. I mean, all those people. I just got inducted, well, I hate to plug that, but into the East Coast Surfing Hall of Fame. And, you know, what a what a great group back there. I used to, for me, it's a, one way I sum it up is if you look at the two different magazines when they were going, the East, ESM and Surfer. ESM has a gossip section, kind of. I forget what they call it. But it's always five or six, ten pages, it's got all these names, it's got all these events, and then you quickly go to Surfer at the same time, and it's one column, super general, and maybe two or three people mentioned, and that's the whole, like, insider gossip thing of, of California, <laughs> and, whereas these, and to me, that's still kind of the basic difference in the coast, and uh, it's a little more personal, maybe not as, uh, I don't it's hard to pinpoint what, but, but that always struck me. It's like, wow, that, that's a huge difference. But um, it seems it seems to be influenced by. Um, I've never thought about it before, but I'm thinking about it now as you talk about it. The industry being kind of based in Southern California becomes beholden to corporate, you know, interests. So it's like they don't want to really gossip and tell story about what's really going on in the community because mm -hmm. it might jeopardize a sponsorship. Um, 
And it, it, it factions the community off a little some bit. of that creeped in, yeah. I think initially it maybe wasn't so much that. No. But, but Dude, how did your yeah, dad... They play, it, they play it pretty safe. It's like, I don't know if you want to jump... Uh, I'm going to jump around, but I always think... If somebody would ask me you know, where you get your news about surfing and stuff, I said, "Well, if you want the PR, go on the press release and read anything on WSL, and if you want the, you know, kind of the next level down from the press release, try Surfline, and then after that, I'd, I'd go to Stab or Beach Grid. Yeah. I and mean, if you're just absolutely bored, you could you could try Magic Seaweed, and occasionally Inertia." Or, just to figure out why Beach Grit hates them so much. <laughs> <laughs> I always feel like Sorry. Beach Grit has directed more traffic to the inertia than I'm they sure ever. Has. I'm sure it has. You no know? question. No question. But anyway, that's getting my well, head. But so we can how linger did, on the Cocoa Beach thing if you want. Well, how did your dad, uh, coming from that kind of space program, how did he feel about you being so heavily invested in surfing? Was no, he appro- did he approve of it? That's a good question. My dad was a star football and basketball player at the Naval Academy, and um, neither of my parents supported the surfing. No, they were they put up with it, kind of, but never really supported it. Never. No, I, I can. It was only my grandmother who who got excited when I got excited about surfing and would watch the wild world of sports uh, broadcast from Sunset Beach and tell me she saw them and get into it. But no, my parents were not, they were, I don't remember them being anti, but they were not supportive. I don't remember them showing up at the events and any of that. So they they put up with it. If I got in trouble or bad grades or something, the first thing that was taken away was surfing. You know, okay. it was a surfboard would be. It's so um, integral in your life's work that I, how could they not, how could they extract, I mean, there'd have to be, they'd have to assign some sort of value to it, in your adulthood anyway, you know, because it's played such an important role. Yeah, that's a tough one, you know, especially then when we were getting started, it was, it had all, only kind of negative connotations surfing. Yeah. It was, uh, it was outcasts, it was rebels, it was people weren't going to mount anything but that's it was the surf bum era i mean i, I kind of see where they're coming from and in that res- regards maybe my, <clears throat> but no i don't i never never felt much support for that but it, uh, but it's one of those things where you didn't need it. I mean, it, it's, you know, if, if they're not going to support my graphic design, it's it's whatever. I'm passionate and I'm into this thing. And, yeah, it would be better and more helpful. But Sometimes it makes you pursue it even more vigorously because your parents don't want it, you know? Yeah, I just, I just don't feel they were, I mean, they had to obviously play a part, but I, I don't. I wasn't doing it against them or sure. for them or more into it because they weren't or it wasn't it wasn't like that. It was stuff I found and was passionate about. I know you originally got your degree in sociology. How did you get involved in graphic design? Well, I have a yeah, degree in sociology. I went to San Diego State and I, like many people, if you didn't know what you wanted to do and you're in California, go to San Diego because it's a great location and beaches and I was going to say party school, but I don't know, a college that's not known as a party school. So, That's a um, good point. 
<laughs> they all say that. They all well, we drink a lot. Oh, really? That's that's rare. That's unique. Um, but um, yeah, I was I was 26 before I heard the term graphic design. <clears throat> I was running a surf shop in uh, South Mission Beach called Infinity. At, at that point, I had a at some point I had a model surfboard come out from Infinity Surfboards, David Carson model, and I went to one of my customers, a guy named Peter Spacek to do the logo. So in my early, very early 20s, didn't even think to do the logo myself. Um, and Peter is, is a great artist and surfer. He's, he's, uh, he's mentioned in the, uh, uh, William, what's the book that won the Pulitzer Prize? Finnegan. Yeah, they're, Barbarian they're, they're buddies. They end up with a th- segment with him and the two of them, and uh, I think it was a Portugal maybe. But anyway, so I was, um, yeah, it's a second career for me, and I was teaching high school in Del Mar, Torrey Pines High School, and I got a flyer one, uh, one spring to post for the seniors announcing this graphic design program. And it basically said, uh, come to this thing for two weeks, and you'll study this and this and all these things. And uh, I thought, God, that sounds really interesting. That's a profession. You can do that for a living and wrote to this, it was University of Arizona, we were doing a two-week workshop in the summer and I wrote to them and said, I'm a teacher, but could I come to this thing? And they said, sure, come on over. And so I went and did that for two weeks and it was just crystal clear after that, that that's what I want to do and everything shifted. Everything uh, changed from that point actually. And part of that process was a more longer story, but because my grandmother supported it, uh, enrolling in little art school up in Oregon that I thought was something I needed to do because she had offered to pay for it. <clears throat> and at the time, I had a friend, David Morin, D. David, used to announce pro surf contests. And, uh, he was doing a magazine called Action Now, which was because Skateboarder magazine was on the way out, which is so hard to realize now that the first rendition of Skateboarder magazine, which at the time was the biggest money maker for surfer publications, bigger than Surfer, bigger than Powder, their most successful magazine to that point had been Skateboarder. Uh, and the sport was dying. It literally died out. And that's just so hard to figure out now. Well, they had Skateboarder magazine and they had this gigantic subscription list and advertisers, but the sport was just dying. So at a last gasp effort, they, they changed it to this thing called Action Now. It was a magazine. And it had a little skating, a little this, a little that, all these different sports. And it, in some ways, it was way ahead of its time, and the public wasn't ready for that. And every one of those sports were upset. You know, how come, what, what are these other pages? And how come, you know, I'm just going to go to my other magazine that only focuses on what I do. And it lasted a couple issues, and that was it. That was the end of skateboarder really but via action now um, which is a long way of getting to my friend D. David Morin was the editor of action now and he knew what I was doing up at this art school and trying to get into this thing called graphic design and he told me he said well you know you should be in contact with my art director who knows maybe there'd be some kind of opening or something and um, uh, so I just basically harassed this guy. Every little assignment, I would send him something down. I was in Oregon. They were in Data Point. And I'd send him every little assignment. And finally, I think out of guilt, the guy kind of said, 
He said, well, you know, look, I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of getting rid of this one person. Uh, you know, if you're down here sometime, stop in. Maybe there's something we could, we could sort out. And with that, I quit the school, moved back down to, to North County, called the guy, and his name was Paul Haven, and said, hey, I'm, I'm here. And he was like, what? What do you mean you're here? Yeah, I came down, I moved. And I think out of guilt, he let me set up a little desk in their uh, art department, pasting up ads, and I've been in the business ever since. Amazing. Yeah. Can you explain what pasting up ad ads mean? I mean, now we think of graphic design, and obviously you need software, you need a Mac, you need all these things. What was it like then? It was all done on art boards, which... Uh, which is bizarre, but it, yeah, it had to be cut and pasted. You had to order type. You got it back the next day or two. Um, you'd waxed on the back. You'd use exacto knife. You'd cut it up. You'd have to put it on these uh, cardboard art art boards, and then put tissue over it. Write all the instructions on the tissue paper, and then send it off to be printed, and hope that it worked and they got your instructions right. And so yeah, I had a little uh, little desk with a uh, a straight edge, an exacto knife, and a waxer, and I'd be putting together, building little ads, little quarter-page ads for the magazine, and uh, that's how I got my start. What year was that? Oh, longer than I want to admit, but it would have been '80s, you know, mid mid '80s, okay. early '80s. And um, in fact, when I did fast forward to. Beach culture, especially ray gun, and it, it happened at, at Surfer too, because I was in the building for Beach Culture magazine. At some point, the printers said, "We won't take these artboards anymore. You have to get this thing on one of these new." At the time, it's called Cyquest, a disc, and get it to us. I was like, "Oh man, really? Now I am going to have to learn that thing." So it wasn't driven by the creative; it was driven by the the production end of it, saying, "Okay, no more artboards." Fascinating. But when you did an issue, um, I remember it mostly with Ray Gun. You, you have a, a month of your life invested in these artboards, and at the end of that month, you have a pile of them, and that's it. And I can remember finishing an issue, and that pile would be ready to go to the printer the next day, and that night being worried, like, well, what if there's a fire in the studio tonight? Or what if the guy gets in a wreck on the way? to the printer tomorrow <laughs> and, and being kind of petrified of that because you just put a, a month I mean it was a passion a love of passionate work so you didn't you really you didn't measure it like that but it was you just spent a month of your life getting this thing ready and there was no backup nor were there any possible way to back it up it only existed on these physical art boards where did those boards end up and I was always relieved to hear that the boards had been delivered to the sure. printer <laughs> yeah um, and they had them well that's a good question you know I wish I had saved more of them than I did I've got a couple storage units one one on the east coast and uh, gosh one well, two on the East Coast, actually, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I've got some of those in there, and they're, they're going to be pretty interesting to rediscover. You know, it brings to mind a thought that I kind of have every once in a while about um, I question how much value does intentionality play in our visual interpretation of things. And so you building those artboards, I would argue, probably took a lot more time, intention, careful thought than things that are built on Photoshop or Illustrator, where you can erase and you know delete and things like that. And as a kid, those magazines were so impactful for me 
they weren't ephemera. They were like very substantial. The, the images translated a lot of meaning to me, more meaning than the current magazines do. And it'd be easy to just say, well, you're a kid and you're really impact, you're like a sponge and it has more impact because of all of these environmental factors. But I do always question how much of it is actually intentionality. There was an artist there doing this thing, spending a month, physically building it, you know? Yeah, and there were no, you, you make a good point. I mean, that was it. You didn't get to quickly look at five versions and pick your favorite. You had to commit to one that you thought was was the way to go and then build it and then spec all the right, you know, try to figure out in your mind what that color would look like on this other photo and is it going to pop or all these decisions. And it was focused on, on one solution. Now you can kind of quickly try a bunch of stuff and go with something. I mean, I would, I, I think it gets to your point. <clears throat> I think the magazines were a lot more intriguing and, uh, uh, well, I hate to say better, but <clears throat> one of the problems today is that you have, a t you still have a lot of magazines, there's still new ones coming out, they're somehow hanging in there, a lot of them, but what you have is a, a large group of what I call kind of B-level magazines. They're solid, they're well done, they look professional, and they're ultimately very forgettable. And it's all subject, doesn't matter if it's girls, sports, fishing, cooking, they're all at a decent level. They're all fine. They're all professional and all pretty much forgettable, because it's 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 about the program and the efficiency of, of just flowing things in and uh, getting them out the door and having it look fine and be okay. I had an editor that used to say, "I I can live with that." I thought, oh, "Can we get a little more passion there yeah. or something?" Yeah. But but so you have. Uh, you know, very few magazines, if any, that I can't wait to see what they're doing now. And in the early 90s, when the computer was first coming in, and there were a lot of mistakes and experimentation, and there were some where you just, wow, what are they going to do next issue? Right. And, and right now, it's gotten so generic. Uh, graphic design in general has become extremely homogenized and generic and safe, I would say. And when I post something now that's a little bit looser or maybe more hand-done, the response, again, is... I'm feeling a shift that people are starting to react again to stuff that feels a little more human, hmm. a little less perfect. You know, maybe 20 years of perfect Photoshop is having some impact. It doesn't go back, nor should it, to an earlier time. But it's. I think we're 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 getting we're tired of everything being perfect for so long. You know, everybody literally is a photographer today. Right. Everybody. Right. You know, it's not just a figure of speech. If you own a phone, you're a photographer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I would argue, and it's kind of the same thing with graphic design. You can buy a program and get a logo for $29.95. My pitch now when I talk to student groups and stuff is like, so it's even more important that you utilize your uniqueness and your background and your upbringing and maybe your parents and nobody else has that nobody else can copy that nobody else can pull from that reservoir of life experience that you've got so if you can figure out a way to get some of that into your work it's going to be something nobody can copy it's going to be your best work and you're going to have the most fun doing it so i'm i'm thinking or i try to see it so it's at the same time we're getting more animated than ever animated is not the right word but automated i guess um is it possibly an opening for the people who do have a, a unique visual sensibility or 
for lack of a better word, I say just the eye. And it's something you can't necessarily teach in school. If you don't right. know that, like I look over and I know this looks better than that. Okay, I don't know where that comes from, but I also am not sure you can teach it. You know, you can, t- you can teach, I can teach anybody. We can go down the street and I can get 20 people and I can teach them to do a reasonable newsletter or a business card or flyer, probably a magazine. Those are teachable skills. But if I say, okay, I got a new uh, album from this band and let's listen to it and come up with a, what that should look like. What is that? We're going to listen to the music and come up with what should that look like? What should the inside of the CD, what should the cover, lyric, all, how, what would that look like? Well, most people are going to be lost on that. And those same 20 people who just did a, a fine newsletter. Um, but a couple of people are going to do something amazing because that, that music spoke to them and it right. sent them in some direction. And that's the area of design I've always been more interested in. I guess more human or more emotion involved. And yeah, I, I tell groups sometimes if you put just a few minutes into, into something, that's about what the viewer will spend with it too. You right. know, there's a sense of this, this might be worth my time or it's not worth my time. I guess um, I called it intentionality from the artist, but it sounds, or it seems to be what it is, is um, the human connection. That is, if you can translate, if the artist is able to translate that human connection and the viewer kind of is able to identify it or connect with it intimately, that's what resonates, I think, with, with the viewer and with any art, period. Yeah, any you know? art. If, if, if you sense there was somebody really involved behind it, I think, and either whether you actually verbalize it or realize it or just... Um, sense it in a way that something went into it. it it brings more value to it it intrigues your interest more yeah and um and yeah i think that's true in all all things your redesign of surfer mag in 1991 is considered kind of a flashpoint in surf design i find it interesting because i think that the surf world surfers in general are sometimes very early to adopt um culture shifts Culture shifting ideas like environmentalism, for example, yoga, uh, health food, surfers are early in on, but at the same time, surfers are super resistant to change in other areas. You know, like we're using the same board construction material for the most part that we've been using for 50 years. Um, Do you remember what the response was to that work in 1991? Was the community accepting of it? Well, you bring up a lot of interesting points. Yeah. The, uh, Derek Hines said it really well. Surfers are the most conservative group he knows, and uh, or something to that effect. And I tend to agree with that. And color too, you know, boards still people are still doing color overlays up on the rail with a pin line. It just you know color board color stuff that's been done for eighty years or something now. So um, yeah, you, you touch on a lot of areas. Yeah, I didn't realize how just how conservative. Uh, a group surfers are till I redesigned Surfer Magazine and, and then it, it kind of struck home. Uh, it's overall a very conservative group and that's a misnomer out there that it's all rebels and uh, all this individual blah blah blah. There, there's a bit of that but geez it's gotten so gentrified. I mean go out here and see a hundred blue soft surfboards. But so yeah very uh, very resistant to change surfers and and there's always exceptions but 
the most part, a very conservative group. And when I redesigned Surfer Magazine, um, there was a lot of stories in that, but <clears throat> one, one, one good one. I had just come off doing this magazine, Beach Culture, which was through Surfer Publications. I th it was started by Steve Pesman. And I think it's what he, at that time, was really how he was envisioning Surfer's journal to be. But me and the editor took Beach Culture to kind of a very different place. And I think Steve was intending, but very experimental and, and uh, kind of very little about surfing, but just a lot more culture stuff and very experimental graphic design-wise. So I was coming off of that and going into, basically they closed that magazine down after six issues, two years. And then they shifted me over to Surfer, which was a very difficult hire for Steve Hawk. I think there was a lot of resistance within the building, and now uh, well, that's that stuff's too uh, too out there and too radical for for surfing. And we're saying, well, no, they should, you know, just like when I did Transworld Skateboarding Magazine for three years. I think as a designer, you have a responsibility to address the audience and what are they seeing and what's their visual sensibility and what's the competition doing and, and who are they and pay attention to that and so you have an unusual amount of freedom I think and if you're doing a skate magazine or, or should be a surf magazine but we went in and uh, Surfer Magazine was one of the first magazines in the country to go completely computer um, way ahead of the curve on that and they had somebody in charge of the design who I would say was more of a computer person than a design person so it was one of the first to be completely done on a computer and uh, but I would say the design suffered as, as a result of that so some of my goal or mission with with, uh, with Steve Hawk the editor was to um, make the magazine a little more relevant to the visual language of the, of the day and the sport and the, and the whole everything in a sense. And when, I remember when I fin finished the first issue and a couple of the advertisers had gotten it, I got a postcard from uh, Michael Thompson at uh, Gotcha. And he, there were still physical postcards then. Uh, and uh, would have come to my little mailbox at Surfer and. And it just said, and this is the first feedback I got about the redesign, and it says, this thing is freaking amazing. I'm blown away. You, you nailed it. The sport needs this so much. Congratulations. And I was just going, okay, cool. This is going to be good. <laughs> and I put it on my bulletin board in front of my desk at Surfer. And, okay, cool. That's nice. Well, pretty much the next day, the, the shit hit the fan, and zillions, seemed like zillions of hate mail started arriving, and people were really pissed. It was, uh, it, it got very uh, strange, <laughs> in a way. I mean, I used to go down, and I'm just coming off of this kind of wild success of Beach Culture Magazine, getting recognized in all these New York award shows, and... and and a lot of attention and, and then all of a sudden there's all this hate mail about the redesign of surfer magazine and i figured you know all these people didn't really surf much anymore it was kind of before it was okay to longboard again and so these people maybe didn't surf much anymore but once a month in the mail box they got their new new issue of surfer magazine and all of a sudden one month it was different and they were pissed and they, and they wrote in and, 
And uh, fast forward, within two or three issues, the ads all started looking like the editorial, and the letters stopped, and it became no big deal. So there was something about the shock of the new, and um, I mean, it got so bad as, as still kind of a new art guy. You know, I have no training, and my training was really skateboarding magazine, and then beach culture, and it had all been pretty positive stuff. <laughs> and, um, I can remember going down after after a couple of days of things getting pretty weird and uh, kind of checking at Steve Hawk's little mail slot to see if he got a big because he got all the mail I didn't get it yeah <laughs> all the hate mail sure and uh, I think there was a day or two I may have borrowed some of his mails before he got it because <laughs> <laughs> it was it was weird times it was you know and I'm sure he had made it was a difficult hire for him uh, he had gone through quite a I think process to convince everybody to bring me in and then they he did and they got all this hate mail and so at the time it was it was pretty bad but it certainly goes to your point of it it's a very conservative group overall and, and resistant to change you know which Certain, is not the common thinking it, the most recent example is the wave pool you know like the greater world just like New York and these other, the broader world for you at the time embraced the design work from the previous magazine, the greater world embraces the wave pool and they see all the potential in it and all the wonder in it. The core community is like, this is the end of surfing. This is going to ruin surfing, you know? And it's like, well, it's not that black and white, first of all. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's changing. It is changes. It, is that things. good or bad? Um, you could you could certainly argue both sides pretty easily, and I was kind of shocked to see the the, the WSL put up the thing showing football players and golfers, and they're all using the pool. And I thought, oh come on, are you serious? And there's a really corny photo of a golfer with his giving the peace sign, yeah. or Kelly in the corner paddling, looking back, and I said, I. I Posted something. Wow, who approved that photo? That thing's deadly for the surf world. See, even then, you're resistant to change. Yeah, <laughs> you're oh, now no. you're oh, now no. the enemy. I hadn't thought of it like that. Well, I don't. You know, I don't. I don't see it like that. I see it like if you want to promote this thing, don't send out corny photos. A guy had a goofy stance. He looks like a kook. Kelly's on his shoulder, like he's gonna. You know. I don't. I don't see that as resisting changes presented in a in a good way. Yeah. Uh, you know, they had. Well, I, I don't want to go there, but you know, Jerry Lopez, one of the first guys to ride the pool, and but but with a hat on and not getting in the tube. I think there were just some basic mistakes there, but and then I don't know. Maybe you want to get into the the broader picture of. of pools leads to WSL and the whole graphic presentation and all that, but. Um, where were, where were you earlier? I kind of well, it was just about that. surfers being resistant to change yeah. and not adopting, um, and then at times completely adopting movements. You know, um, I'm curious though when I look at your work, right? Any artist, you start getting accolade, you start getting famous. Um, you want to be able to capitalize on that business. And certainly your list of clients is long and impressive. But to accommodate that business, you have to create a business. You have to form a business, which is very different than creating art. And I'm, I'm curious in that intersection of creative expression and 
um, the minutia of running a business, you know, and what that challenge has been for you. Do you then layer staff in? And if you do, can you kind of help? Are you are they are they ever able to fully understand your vision and your work and then translate it in their role in the job? How has that process been for you over the years? Well, I think I think that's a good question, and you know if if this were a visual recording, uh, you it, it may say something. Uh, I think it addresses that that we're now sitting in the world headquarters of David yeah. Carson Design. You are here. You're looking at the entire staff. You're looking at the office. You're looking at the vehicles. <laughs> so. I've never been a particularly good business person, <laughs> and I think had I been a better business person, the things you had brought up would have been more of an issue. You know, I have a big staff and get a job in, and and I say, uh, okay, team, we're doing ray gun number seven for this for this client for this project, and and then I go golf or something. It it's never worked out that way. I've always been small. I'm extremely hands-on. I mean, when we finish today, I've got, I'll be working on a bunch of covers for, for two different magazines out of, out of Europe, and I'm pretty excited. I have like 10, 12 versions, and I got more on the way. But so it's a good question. I mean, I've kept the work out there, uh, which brings in more work. Um, but I've never gotten very big to where I have to find all these people that are uh, can do what I do. You know, people, when they hire me, they want me to do it. Yeah. And I enjoy doing it. I, I'm extremely hands-on. You know, I was working this morning. I'll work late today. You know, I got some cool stuff going on. I just enjoy it. Um, it would have been, it's, it's ironic in a way, it would have been a bigger issue, what you're talking about, had I been a better business person. Then I would have had to deal with some of those problems. Um, but I haven't too much because I've, I've, I've thought early, you know, I can remember being at Surfer Publications, you know, working on Surfer Magazine and getting a call from Norway. Uh, and he wanted me to come give a lecture about my work, and I just thought, "Wow, what? Really, me? A free trip? To, I gotta look on the map. Where is Norway? How cool is that?" Well, that's well over twenty years ago now, and I still kind of react the same way. And those calls still come in, you know. <laughs> so they they rarely pay, if anything, very little. But but I get to see a different part of the world, meet different people, new experiences, and I've always done that, and I've literally gotten around the world with, with this work and you, for a long time with a tray of slides physically a tray of slides I would show up pretty much all over the world and now it's my laptop that you're looking at here you know has been mm -hmm. is, 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 the, is my slide tray now but so I, I think indirectly or maybe just because of my lack of business savvy um, it's been more important for me to experience these trips and go all over the world and show my work and as opposed to buckle down and create a real business. Um, even though I kind of thought I had and I've, I've had two or three people work for me in New York. I had a studio there for seven years. Um, but I guess... Would, would you have done it any differently in hindsight? Would you have devoted more time towards certain aspects of That's it? That's a good question. You know, I can't complain too much about 
my whole career has gone pretty well for a guy with no no training and a second career and started yeah. out as a high school teacher. I think there's there's some areas where I do wish I had been a little more business savvy and, uh, and maybe I'd be a little little better off financially now. But but then if but if it meant losing some of the experiences, I, I don't think that's a good trade off. You know. Um, it, do you think that I'm first of all asking some of these questions selfishly oh, as dude, I'm looking at managing selfish. my life? Yeah, you know? Do do. Um, <laughs> do you, you know? Let me don't lose that thought. Okay. Um, uh, early in my and one of the criticisms of the of the magazine work was from a couple of writers that well it's just self indulgent self indulgent design. That was like a buzzword for this dig, and yeah, and uh, I, I say, I'd say absolutely. I'm totally absorbed in it and involved in it, and I hope it gets noticed and uh, very self-indulgent. And I wouldn't want somebody working for me who also wasn't self-indulgent, extremely passionate about what they're doing, not watching the clock, hoping people notice it. Yeah, if that's self-indulgent. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> it, it was always used as a negative, and I, I never saw it as that. Yeah. Um, I, so I'm curious, when you look back at the things that maybe you would have done differently or devoted more time to, are they in relation to organizational-type things, or are they in relation to humans, like working with other people? Another good question. Um, yeah, I've only recently started thinking it's funny I thought if somebody asked me a similar question I think I would maybe hopefully choose a little less uh, fewer battles I guess <laughs> in a way and um, I don't know where I got it was from my dad or but there's a part of me if everybody's doing something then I don't want to do that and if something's getting all the attention, then I'm not going to give it the attention. Or, you know, I just mentioned to you earlier, if everybody's riding this one kind of surfboard, I'm not going to ride that. Uh, I don't know where that comes from exactly, but there was <clears throat> there was an example of a, a magazine when I was just getting started that all of a sudden started to get a lot of attention. And, and I'm new to this world and not knowing it. Uh, and... For me, there's an aversion to that. If something's getting like if I, if I was out there, the general public of graphic designers, I probably wouldn't like myself or this guy that's he's getting way too much attention and he's not that great anyway. Yeah, <laughs> and I probably wouldn't go up and talk to him. Uh, I have a little bit of that too. Yeah. I wonder what the psychologists have to have a name for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure they do. I'm sure they do. So I think I would have picked a few. Hey, I'm not, I'm not a fighter. I wouldn't say I picked fights, but I would have. You know, one example: there was this when I was doing Beach Culture magazine. There was a magazine called Emigre. It was a very good graphic design magazine. Very, uh, hard, I don't know, very authentic, uh, just for designers, not the public. And I was always doing stuff for the public, so it's a little bit different. Somebody said I was experimenting in public, which I was. We try a bunch of stuff in these magazines. Some of it worked. Some of it didn't at least half and half and uh but it was going out all over the world <laughs> people see your mistakes and they see your good stuff too but there i was starting to hear a lot about this magazine called Evergrey, and and they had they were making fonts and they were all the cool fonts and all the designers seemed to be grabbing these cool fonts so just 
so I did an issue. The second issue of Beach Culture is called, uh, on the cover it says, Special No Emigre Fonts Issue. Well, 99% of the readers didn't know what emigre or fonts were. But, and I didn't. I used just the fonts that the rental computer I was using came with. <laughs> uh, so I've, I've always I have a little bit of that not... You know, when I, when I first uh, went to a couple of design conferences early, early in my career, and I realized because, probably because of my lack of schooling, I couldn't really engage in these discussions about this theory or deconstructionism or modernism, really, because I, I didn't study any of that. I didn't know the people. And there's part of me that, that always kind of liked not being able to get in on those discussions, not to dress in black and stand around and discuss postmodernism versus construction. You know, or just, no, I couldn't do that. And yeah. I kind of liked not being part of that. So anyway, I think now uh, that would be one thing. So maybe a little more personal or human related. I would, you know, no, I don't see the value in kind of creating a little, adding to the little riffs. Uh, with some people, and then uh, and there's definitely a few business decisions. I mean, I, <laughs> I lost clients to go because there were waves coming in the Caribbean, or because or I don't like making phone calls or whatever right. it is. And so there's there's some stuff I, I definitely could have done different. I could have, yeah, maybe been not quite as ag, ag, agnostic. I don't know if that's the word, but. Yeah, create some rifts with people I didn't really need to and uh, definitely could have made some better business decisions. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn jobs. Your time and capital are precious and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally Free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. It's tough to manage all of the details from, again, the business minutia and then human relationships. Yes. And I look at examples like um, in regard to artists, Van Gogh, talk, they talk about never sold a painting or sold one painting, I think, before he died. Herman Melville was an accountant. You know, Moby Dick. He wrote Moby Dick. He didn't become famous until after his death. Um, so you look at those and you go, okay, well, they're an artist just creating art in isolation, essentially, in a vacuum where they're not, there's no other human interaction in terms of 
the layers of the bureaucracy that happen when you build the business of the artist. But then there's also not even them going to these art shows and getting feedback from critics and other artists. So they're able to create their entire canon of work in a vacuum, which is a super unique experience that I don't know that a lot of people really get to have today. No, especially now. I mean, you instantly, instantly, literally find out how your work's going over with the public. Absolutely. By, by Instagram and, and a couple of the other programs. I mean, uh, and it's easy to fall into that. You know, I, I yeah. find it more as the curiosity now. It's like, wow, really? That that got that kind of response? Uh, kind of surprising. Um, but you're absolutely right. There's something much more pure about what you're describing. You know, I, I just tell groups that, you know, you just your work environment has so much to do with the work you're producing. I mean, now it's now it's a zillion times bigger, but I used to use the example. If you're a designer and you're working on something on, on your screen and you got your music going, you're kind of in your zone, and, and somebody comes along behind you and <laughs> could be the janitor, and it says, Oh, you're making that blue? He's like, well, well, yeah. Oh, just wonder, just wonder. And they go along their way. Well, it has some impact. You're, well, yeah, I was. I mean, maybe, is that the wrong blue? <laughs> you know? So true. You know, so just your, your environment has so much to do. And even if you don't think it does, or you think you're making your own decisions, and somebody comes by and says, oh, I like that one. That's great. And, you know, oh, you know, it registers. Yeah. And so now you magnify that with Instagram, and you got a thousand people like it. And you're right. like, oh, well, okay, must be good then. Right. I'll do more of that. Yeah, yeah. Do you think the addition of other humans helps or hinders your work in the end? Oh, absolutely hinders. <laughs> no question. Uh, and that's a you know big topic, especially you start getting into agencies and stuff, and, and where you got to have all the committee and group decisions, you know, and you never get great design from committee or group decisions. You you rarely get horrible design and you rarely get great design. You get something in the middle that's right. safe. And that's not where you want to work. It's no fun for people doing it, people looking at it. But no, I feel strong. You know, the best stuff comes like what you described. A guy had no input. He was just doing his thing. You know, when I finished an issue of Ray Gun Magazine and Beach Culture, uh, I sent it to the printer. And nobody had to okay it. Nobody had to approve it. Nobody had to weigh in on the design. Yeah. I finished, and I was felt it was done or ready to send to the printer. Right. And it worked. Well, that's exactly... If I had had a committee... Yeah. It would we good chance we wouldn't even be here today talking. Right. You know, it's uh, and I even had a separate office. I was doing a magazine in San Diego, and the editor editorial office was uh, in L.A. and we rarely met. Mm -hmm. <laughs> had we even been in the same building, it would have affected the design. And I, and I have to say, in a negative way, and I don't see that as any self-grandizing thing. It's just no. It's just the way it works with with any artist or musician. You know. I think that connects to the earlier conversation about just um, you as the artist working with that artboard, putting all this intention and labor into it to create this kind of expression of your own experience. And then the viewer being able to connect with that. It's a one-on-one -on -one interaction. Yes, you are putting it out to the broad market, but within that there's individuals. So there's a very intimate link 
there in the scope of this much broader thing. Um, and I think that's what where all good art comes from. You know, it's stripping away the committee. You 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 need the committee to kind of create the distribution to, deals. To set it up. All, yeah. To set it up. You know, I, but, but I would, even that committee is going. We just want to recreate a human interaction. Yeah, and know? and one of the things I I, I mentioned with the the, the, the publisher of, of Reagan Magazine and and probably Beach Culture too. The the best what they should be given credit for is they let it happen. You know exactly. Uh, they got out of the way and they let it happen. And uh, you know, as opposed to they were in charge of the design or they 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 focused the look or any of that. No, no, but they let it happen. They got the they got. So it's they a got risky the right people together, and then they they let it happen. It's know? a risky thing to do. Yeah, it is. It is. Well, the, you know, the first issue of, of the Reagan magazine, the publisher got pretty worried, and editor and I were are convinced still to this day. He, he tried to get us to quit. He didn't want to fire us necessarily, but he came in and for the first issue we're about to go to print. And, Said whatever, I mean, a couple hundred dollars they were paying us or something. He said, "Well, we, you know, we're going to have to give you half of that, and we understand if you have to, if you can't do that, and you have to move on." <laughs> and me and Ed were going, "No, nah, that's okay. We'll we'll still do it." We, we realized <laughs> there was a, quite an opportunity here. And uh, and then after the first issue, the advertiser started calling, and it got started getting all this press, and he just backed off. Mm. And I got thirty more issues, you know, so. Matt Warshaw described your work, the style of your work, as industrial meltdown, featuring <laughs> compressed text, mismatched font size, chopped, scratched out, cut, and mixed type, and radically cropped photos. What do you think the genesis of that style was? Well, I'd back up and probably disagree a bit with the, <laughs> the description. It sounds like a... A, a good writer trying to describe something they don't know too much about or or understand. Um, uh, you know, like people talk about grunge photography well, I, or design. I don't know a single designer, myself included, who ever uses the word grunge. Like, yeah. we're going to do some grunge design today. You know, <laughs> it's, it's a writer's term that has like no meaning. Um, but... Uh, I don't know. Read, read me those quotes again. They're yeah, gladly. Interesting one. Industrial meltdown is <laughs> is how he characterized the style, and he said it featured compressed text, mismatched font size, cropped, scratched, cut, and mixed type, and radically cropped photos. Well, then that's that's not a mis a horrible misrepresentation. I mean, I can. Uh, Matt's great, and we're in. Semi-regular contact to this day, but but yeah, so I would I would agree with with some of that. Um, Where did that style come from? I mean, whether you know, it's a maybe fair it's a you know when I used to watch before I got involved in Surfer, maybe right about the same time, Surfing Magazine had a photo editor, Flame, who since passed on, who, who was a great photographer, but the definition of a good photo seemed to be was it sharp and in focus and perfect color. And the closer you got to all those, then the closer it came to becoming a good photo. Whereas to me, no, it's more about the attitude and the feeling and the emotion. And that could be blurry, it could be black and white, it could be, color could be off, or whatever. Um, but if it feels right, it feels the emotion, and that's a great photo. So uh, 
there's part of me that was rebelling without really realizing it maybe or not verbalizing it kind of against that perfect aesthetic that because it lost all the feeling you see a perfectly focused surf photo perfect color guys are writing red boards or yellow boards because they look better in the photo and 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 you know back sending the photo back a hundred times with little sections and make this darker and and then voila we have this thing like it came out of a studio you know yeah. a studio shot devoid of all life all feeling I've always really hated that that kind of approach. So it's not like I did surfer and say, okay, so I'm going to go against that approach. I did what made sense to me. And that's kind of always how I work because I don't have the training. I don't have any other place to start. I have to read an article, listen to the music, and it has to send me somewhere. Uh, and I say, wow, what would that look like? You know, that's a really, uh, that person's really angry or they're happy or they're, this is sad or, you know, what, how is that? How can I reinforce that? What would that look like? And that's my starting point. Whereas the stuff we see today, it's just automatic. It's set up in advance. The articles come in, they're flowed in. There's a box waiting for the photo. It gets dropped in. Right. It's like, no, let's look at that photo. Maybe it has to bleed. Maybe there's a section of it. Let's, let's make this thing live. And um, So the starting point of Surfer was, I just knew it needed to be up, updated drastically just from a graphic design standpoint from a from a just a core graphic design level it was about a decade behind what was going on in graphic design when i came in um now given the era and the time we pushed it i don't know it doesn't it still seems pretty tame if you look back to it and it was very tame compared compared to beach culture magazine which i had just done for two years um but it was more, wow, we've got computers, we've got different kind of music, the world's changing, the whole mix has changed, let's have a magazine that represents that. And I think they're horribly in need of that again at sure. Surfer. <laughs> sure. What, um, with the work that you've been doing, certainly your current work, what style, how do you, uh, how's your style evolved and kind of what are you interested in representing now? Do you still feel the same way? Well, I don't, I was kind of, I never feel comfortable with the word style. I think it's an approach, although style is a language and can be used to communicate a lot of things. But I think my basic approach is, is still very similar in that I'm trying to interpret what I've given. You know, there's a saying that I've used a lot that says you cannot not communicate. Uh, it's impossible to not communicate. Everything communicates something. If you don't answer your text, that sends a message. You can't not communicate. And that message may be, don't read me, boring, stay away, not worth your time. What? But something you, you cannot not communicate. And so I'm always intrigued by what am I communicating in, in this direction. Um, with the magazines, I tried never to repeat myself, you know, because there was no grid or system. Every page was a whole new design assignment. I still try to work that way. I don't, I don't feel I've ever repeated myself. Um, the approach and the sensibility is mine, and there's going to be something similar there. But in terms of two pages where you go, oh, look, the same design. No, I don't, because every project's different. Every Every person, every story, every musician, they're all different. How, how could they look identical? Um, so much of your work history is in print magazines. Do you mourn 
the constricting of that medium? Oh, I wouldn't say more. And I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm busy and, and uh, on the different things. And I, I mourn the fact that what's out there has gotten so generic and homogenized and, and boring. I, I mourn that a bit. Uh, and I don't know how much you want to really get into it. But, you know, I look at Surfer Magazine today and I just say, wow, where is the emotion? Where's the feeling? Where's the uniqueness of, of the sport? And I... I think similar things with a lot of the WSL's approach is, wow, where's, where's the emotion? Where's the representation of, of who, who we really are? Um, so I, I probably like any artist, I, I want to feel I'm still evolving and not just repeating myself. And, uh, uh, and I feel that. I'm still hoping to do more moving things. I'm, I'm kind of getting more into drawing and painting and collaging again which has been kind of fun and uh yeah i don't know based on your client list it doesn't seem like you rely on print media to exist i mean you can do design work in a lot of other mediums than print but because so much of your work was in print i was just wondering if the morning would come from more of a um, sentimental aspect you know just like man this i've loved this thing for so long and it's going away. I guess because I, because I've got other projects besides magazines in particular, and I'm I'm yeah probably as busy as ever or as I want to be, and interesting things come up from just a weird mix of clients. I never have a ton of clients, but I have an eclectic, eclectic group of stuff, and uh, and so it keeps interesting for me. Um, I don't I don't mourn like the death of magazines or something I uh, I think it's too bad they've gotten so uh, generic uh, and sometimes I I think well it was a pretty good uh, there's a great energy in doing a magazine that you have this crazy two weeks of putting something together and then kind of a, either building up or winding down and then it all starts again and there's this kind of you can try a bunch of stuff and some of it works some of it doesn't and then there's another one coming along, and I can remember put so much into these magazines, and then when you finally get one back and hold it, you're already into the next one. So it's kind of right. like, oh, oh yeah, that, yeah. Um, and then there's there's other things you you kind of miss a little bit. I wouldn't mourn seems strong, but you know when I got a new magazine back, first thing I do the tests with it are first the weight, does it feel substantial, uh, and then the smell, does it smell? And then the texture of the cover, do we go with the right stock? And then you open it and start evaluating the design. So you miss, miss some of that. I miss the rhythm of being able to try all this stuff, then being gone, and then have another 100 pages come along the next month. That, that part of it is kind of, you know, I, I wouldn't mind doing that again if it was the right subject matter and the right yeah. people. Yeah. What surf brands or media companies do you feel are doing the strongest job, like the best job with their visuals? Are there any shining, shining examples that you can think of? Well, my immediate thought is to go to some of the smaller or perceived as being smaller companies, uh, starting with, and, and they've faded, but the ones I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of, the RVCA and the... Uh, 
some of the Brixton and other ones I can't pronounce. <laughs> some of those started doing much cooler stuff way before the big guys caught on, and then it was too late. The Quicksilver and the kind of safe, medium stuff. Um, so in terms of one, I mean, I, I love the stuff uh, Dane Reynolds is doing. Uh, hard to get too excited about the outer known or okay. Um, yeah, I, I don't want to say there's not good stuff out there, but I am having trouble thinking of one that's just blowing everybody away. But in general, the ones that are smaller feel more authentic, feel like somebody who is that rare combination of <clears throat> somebody like <clears throat> Dane Reynolds can do something, <clears throat> first of all, amazing style server, like maybe him and Curran, and then not too many. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, <clears throat> who has a sensibility that's really good and, and that's rare and when those two come together you get some really cool stuff yeah um you know when i started doing transversal skateboarding the birth of the magazine as as many people will know came from uh, uh a, a parent being upset with thrasher magazines being too radical for their young son so they started transversal skateboarding as a rebuttal to thrasher and they had the skaters wrote their articles, took the photos, and did the layout. Which in theory is pretty cool. That's a pretty soulful, cool idea. And in reality, it didn't work at all. <laughs> the first couple of issues are just horrific uh, to where Stacy Peralta called them. He had the, I think, inside cover and back cover and said, look, if you don't, you know, we'd, lo we'd love to support you. We'd love to have another magazine out there. And this was as skateboarding was coming back. Uh, but if you don't get it together with this, the look of this magazine, we're, we're going to have to pull out. Yeah. And that led them to, to getting around to finding me and, and starting my whole career. But, but anyway, it's that, it's that, so if you can get that, and it's hard, you know, there's, there's, I think of, I don't know how many names you want to mention, but like Canvas by Caton, I used to do ads for, I mean, I was sponsored by them, which meant you got a free pair of trunks, but they have this ad program now out where they're all perfectly shot and perfectly focused and they just don't feel like they have any life to them. And you know, I just did some work at an ad agency and they, and the, they have these people celebrating and the beer has to be facing the camera and perfectly focused and the look, you know, and it just loses all the authenticity of the realness. So any of the companies that are able to keep some of that and, and they tend to be, like I say, either the smaller ones or the ones that are perceived as being small uh, right. before they get too big and anonymous again. But uh, Do you subscribe to any of the surf magazines? No, I don't subscribe to any. Um, <clears throat> to me, it's it's, uh, it's funny. It's a bit of a ritual, I guess, as uh, it has been over my career. And less and less was going to a magazine store and scanning the covers and seeing what's new and seeing what catches my eye. And much much like going to a record store that also don't exist much anymore and just scanning all the covers and. You know, I used to buy CDs based on the cover, and it yeah. rarely works, by the way, but occasionally you get something amazing you wouldn't have found otherwise. Um, so I like the experience, and here, where we're talking in Manhattan Beach, there's actually a magazine store in this little town that 
is, is just a, a gold mine for me like all the magazines from Europe and, and everywhere and, and so it's, it's a I think I like the experience of going in looking discovering what's new finding that I would rather do that than open the mailbox and have the magazine there for me personally so that's that's probably a lot of the reason why I, I don't subscribe and uh, uh, I enjoy uh, you know and I but I look at most of the magazines online and you know Surfer's Journal continues to do a really good job I, um, Surfer I think is, is floundering it's, it's you know if, if you want to do the clean simple thing like Surfer Journal has done so well then then go in that direction and if you want to do the more radical thing or whatever, then go way over there. But if you're somewhere in the middle, that's when it's going to be the least effective. And Surfer seems to be trying to follow the Surfer's Journal model, but just not very well and very forgettable. And as somebody who surfs and designs, that's like, it hurts. It's right. painful. It's painful to see because there's so much potential there and an audience that... that I, I demand might be a little strong, but it wants it and experimental people. And, you know, it was so great to see a few years back when it became you know, cool to, to draw on your boards, you know, and give them some humanness again. And the fact that you could buy these pens and, and you know, that was a great movement. It seems to already be fading a bit, but uh, always kind of disappointing on to see the pro boards that are pretty traditional airbrush or color schemes. Uh, from whenever but um, yeah so I think no right now there's not a good certainly not a good um, <laughs> I can't think of a, a surf magazine as a graphic design example that I would put out to the graphic design world and say boy look what they're doing this is really interesting and it should be it's an experimental sport you have young creative people and then you have this generic uh, publications coming from it and and even the, the WSL, you know, I, I am friends with the person who they first went to and, and to do the, the, the logo and some of the branding work. And they're a big, huge firm in the middle of Canada whose claim to fame was doing the um, uh, Super Bowl look and graphics. And they, WSL came to them and said, look, we want our we want our sport to look like football. And the owner of the company told me personally that he told them, we don't think surfing is football. And that the they fought back and said, no, this is the look we want. So the early stuff in particular is very corporate America, very trying to be football, trying to be something it's not. Uh, it's gotten better, but it's still so generic. This is a really unique sport. And to try to pigeonhole it and say, to get bigger, we have to look like we're a football team or, or some other mainstream. No, that's the beauty of the sport. That's the attraction to other people of the sport is that it is unique. And it's an amazing array of characters and personalities and artistic, creative people. And then to pre present it to mid-America or the rest of the world as though it's just a generic professional, another sport that looks like all the other ones you've seen, that takes away from the the attraction to the sport itself and the original attraction and I think that's that's missing it's it's 
fine. What they're doing again is solid. It's, it's, a, it's professional, but it doesn't speak of the uniqueness of the sport or the participants or the thing that helped it grow so much over the years was this individualistic, creative, a little bit crazy thing. And uh, all of that's pretty devoid. It's a very sanitized um, version the, that the world sees when, the, when they're now introduced to surfing via, uh, via one of these events. If you look at the UFC as an example, they've had explosive growth. And I would imagine if they brought consultants in a decade ago, every single consultant would have, say, would have said, you need to sanitize it. We can't have blood on TV. We can't have all the gore. Thankfully, they didn't do that. And they've actually stuck to their core values. And they're like, we want brutality. And their you know, CEO, Dana White, is absolutely a vocal advocate who's cussing at people on Instagram and picking fights with people. And if the judging, if the referee makes a mistake in a fight, he goes on Instagram that night and completely lambasts the guy and makes fun of him. And so it's exactly what you're saying. It's it's they are going, we're not going to bow down to what these other sporting organizations have done in the past and follow their path. We know that our core is brutality, and we're going to stick with it. More blood, more guts, more Conor McGregor cussing at his opponent. That's what we are, you know? And so I think that might be the example to follow. That's what's lacking. Uh, you know, it's so sanitized. And, you know, it, it's, it's, again, it's like the magazine. It's done at a good level. It's solid, and it's definitely gotten better um over the last few years and probably aren't too many people that hate the the graphic presentation um but it's not leading it's not yeah. it doesn't have the other sports watching and a little bit worried and copying there's nothing to copy from any presentation of the wsl it's all stuff that's out there being done well by a lot of different groups and sports and i i just feel surfing is more unique than that and should and should have people talking and a buzz about the way they present these events and the numbers on their jerseys or, or whatever it is but there, there's none of that it's very generic and solid it's it's uh but gosh it's such a more gosh i can't believe i said gosh um it's such a more <laughs> intriguing uh colorful creative uh out there sport and uh, i think that's that's a miss man you're talking about trying to get more people not by trying to tell them it's a lot like football try to tell them it's no it's really unique and it's I mean, it's not exactly what you thought but there's some unique characters and a lot of creativity and uh in fact, look how we're doing this. Even the numbers on our shirts are blah, 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 or, or whatever. It's just, that, that's, that's lacking. I feel like their rationale might be, well, we have no competition. <laughs> so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and, and, yeah and, and what an approach if, that, if that's the case. And then they're true. What, where else are you going to watch? You know? so, and that's unfortunate. And that, that's too bad because given that, amount of freedom in that position is even more the reason to run with it and, and right. set the standards, set True. the bar, uh, have these other, you know, uh, sports copying or looking to see what you're doing because you're, you're leading the whole, the whole visual presentation, whether it's regardless of the media. How closely do you follow the WSL? Do you watch the events? Yeah. 
Yeah, I do. Uh, probably too too closely. It's sometimes I'm glad when they're off so I can get some work done and uh, you know weird hours and I'm trying to wean myself. But uh, but now it's just you know the the just the whole social plot and uh, all that stuff. Yeah, whether it, you know my background sociology, so there's just so much going on and uh, yeah I. I'm fairly addicted to them. <laughs> you know, I say now after lambasting it, but it doesn't mean you, you can't have both and get, a, if the goal is to get a wider audience, don't get, uh, then, then get people turning in because you heard they're doing some really interesting stuff with their information graphics or their, the way they introduce their sponsors or their, this, whatever it is. You know. Who's your pick for the world title this year? I think it's 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 always kind of I was gonna say it's disappointing usually a, a lot of times and um, I don't think there's a clear winner I don't think the best person often wins the events uh, you know I'd, I'd uh, like to see <clears throat> uh, Toledo I think get in there Medina everybody loves to hate is is still one of the best surfers in the world. Uh, Really intrigued with the uh, uh, Griff Griffin call guy's name. I can't say. Kids got yeah, a lot of potential. <laughs> yeah, and uh, um, yeah. How'd you feel about Idolo's performance at Bell's? Well, I think I think this. this Maybe the sociologist or humanist in me. The other story was so perfect. <laughs> Maybe it was too perfect for Mick? for Mick to go out in first place, which he would have, you know. And, and, and so maybe that was too perfect. And maybe it's fitting that it was second in the last event. And uh, I always thought um, he was a little underrated. Uh, got it one, uh, you know, and had some bad breaks. You think Mick? Mix? No. Oh, Idolo. Idolo. Yeah. Uh, I can't say the same. Yeah, I you know, had some health issues. I always thought early I was kind of had my eye thinking, ooh, this, this guy's definitely at that level. And then kind of faded. So kind of reacquainting again. I like that he seems pretty humble and, and just a, a good, sincere person and, and some amazing surfing. Totally. So who's your pick for the title? <laughs> you going with Felipe? No, he seems to have this weird string of bad luck with the interferences and uh, and just bombing. And I, I think he should, but you look at the addition, the next Fiji, right? Um, the addition of the wave pool this year and Karama. But does the wave the pool wave pool suits count? Him. Does it count yes. in the ratings? The Founders Cup does not, but there is a wave pool event in September that replaces Trestles. Count. Oh, okay, okay. I wasn't clear on that. Yeah, okay. and then so they, that, they added Karamas this year too, which suits Felipe. Which is great. Yeah. Well, I would, so he could he could be. I'd, a I'd I'd love to see him win just because I think he's he's uh, the level of the um, you know they talk about innovation and yeah. all that criteria. I mean that's that's it. Whether you like him personally or not, or you don't like his country or something. I mean the level of that guy. I mean just. To think to do two of those moves on that wave at Jeffrey's Bay was nobody had thought about that. I don't think unreal. Yeah, to to think to do a second one, not just start claiming and looking back at the judges, but yeah. to go right into another one, much less pull both of them. It was just uh, just another level, uh, and I think we're already starting to see that when you see clips of of some of the pros or other people doing one move and then trying to do another one. And right. I, I'm sure it's influenced by that. Well. Know? 
don't think you're done. You know, go look, do another one. After he after he landed the second alley oop, he ripped the wave yeah, beyond the that. Yeah, he did a absolutely. couple turns and then absolutely. slammed the end section. It was like absolutely. You could have just if, gotten if you, a ten. Yeah, if you picked it up from from after he landed the second one, it's still really good progressive surfing. Yeah, absolutely. So, Gnarly. Uh, I'd, I'd, I'd love to see him win, but I, uh, somehow it doesn't seem to go that way. Um, do you think Kelly is going to officially retire? He's obviously sat out this first part of the season. I think that gets trickier and trickier. You know, I thought he should have retired. <laughs> Just what he needs another opinion out there. But when, you know, he won, was it Fiji? The last contest he won? Might have been um, Chopu. Okay, Chopu. He, he he won the contest. He got the Andy award, award for charging. I just thought, wow, that's... Is that, are you going to repeat that? What a, what a great out that would have gone. And my fear is, is that he... He doesn't go out on a high note or number one in the world or after another world championship. They just kind of injury and miss contests and, and just kind of fades. So uh, That's the part of the story we're at right now. Yeah, and, you know, no question the best competitor, com- competition surfer of all time. I don't believe you can say who the best surfer of all time is. I think that's unknowable. The readers of Surfer Magazine said it was Duke Kamanamoko. Um, and Kelly was second. So, I, I mean, that's that's kind of a. Uh, I, I just think it's a mistake to try to call somebody the best surfer of all time. I think you could say clearly the best competitive surfer of all time, with no question, and just uh, and just a really good, sensible person in general. I feel like he cannot. If he came back and competed, he can't compete with Idolo and Felipe uh, in marginal surf. But if the waves are 8 to 10 feet at Chopu or Fiji or Pipeline, nobody can touch him. You know, like Gabriel and John John are close, but he's on a different level when the waves are pumping. Yeah, I'd say I, I would agree with that. If, if the waves are good and big and, and his wave knowledge and placement on the wave and... and uh fearlessness is is uh there's no one better Not absolutely yeah. um the problem is when it gets average to poor surf like half the events are he's, right. he's he's not the best one in that yeah but his his positioning and knowing where to be and when it's when it's pumping uh yeah there's no one better surf media has shifted obviously tremendously over the years that you've been involved in it So much of it exists on Instagram nowadays. And I know that you are kind of relatively new to Instagram. Yeah. How do you feel about the medium? Well, it's slowly uh, taking up too much of my time. Um, And I guess I'm trying to figure it out a bit. I think it's... It's just part of a, a pro's repertoire now. You you seem to have to have those out there. Um, uh, I don't know. Can you be more specific? Uh, I'm curious how you feel about the medium as a platform for showcasing your work and for interacting with either fans or clients and that sort of thing. Part of me, uh, I maybe don't need to fully explain it beyond that, but part of me thinks it has tremendous value for the connectivity that you can have with humans. But I also feel like sometimes it devalues an artist's work because it's just this constant flowing river of information 
and if you've put a bunch of heart and soul into something, that's maybe not the best platform, you know, so. Yeah, I think you raise a really good question, and I'm still trying to sort that out. You know, I, I realize I got kind of, I'm into it late, just all within the last year, actually, and figure out how long I've been doing this. That's pretty recent. Um, and I find myself, like, looking to see if my uh, subscribers are up or, or whatever, and thinking, yeah, I need to get that up, or people will tell me how I can get it up, and I yeah, okay, and then I think, well, wait, what's, what is the end game? What's the point exactly? So if I get 100,000 more people liking it, what, what is, how is that uh, a good thing, or well, what, what's the point exactly? But yeah. meanwhile, I've, I'm kind of in there, and it seems to be, uh, I don't know. I, it's, I guess it's kind of vague to me in the in its value. Other than when I started <clears throat> my career, I, I used to enter the competitions, and I would send a magazine to people I would read about. And realizing that in order to keep doing what I like to do, I had to get to work out there, and that would allow me to do what I love doing. And so I had no problem with kind of self-promoting the work or entering competitions, like I say. Or, and so I, I guess I'm seeing it as a bit of an extension of that, is that my hope is that some progressive, cool client sees something and gets a hold of me that I don't think that's happened yet. <laughs> but, but, but you raise a really good point. I mean, there's stuff that I've spent a lot of time, and it was a poster for a huge event, and then all of a sudden it's one of five zillion images for a few seconds, and... Uh, I don't know. I don't. Of course, I don't think the. It's not so much a matter of is it good or bad. It is, and that's part it of is. the landscape right now. And if you're a graphic designer, it's probably something. And you're, especially if you're starting out, that you probably do need to have your work there and get people seeing it. And then maybe that does get you some more work and that sort of thing. And the, the surf guys, I I assume it's important for their sponsors and. You know, the obvious one is just self-gratification. People yeah. like to be liked. And, you know, that, that's what, what launched uh, Facebook. It was, uh, yeah. I remember studying in college, one of my favorite writers, Kurt Vonnegut, and uh, he used to say, well, he had a lot of great stuff, but one thing he said is that the, the government should support, um, and this was way pre-computer, they should support uh, uh, astrological signs and really push that. It's really important. So you could take a jury drab nothing person but all of a sudden they're a virgo and they share that day with this famous person and that person and, and they're something really special and all about bringing value to the individual who feels maybe forgotten or not a bit part of uh, society or something and i think in a way that's what facebook originally did it's like it allowed people who to uh, feel better about themselves mm -hmm. and then it very early early stages and so i think there's there is some value to that um, but now it's gotten kind of out of hand, and I think no question helps us get in this horrific political mess yeah. we're in. <laughs> I think with Instagram, I think it can be what whatever you want it to be, and I suppose you, th and this isn't a fully formed thought yet. I'm not giving you Instagram advice, uh, but... No, if please you, do. I it, need no, it. No, but if you just posted <laughs> images of your work, I don't think that would be the most effective use of it, right? Uh, and it wouldn't what do your do you, work justice. What do you think would be the most effective? Telling, I'm, I'm looking for that. So I think what I would like to see as a viewer, a follower of yours, would be the story behind your work. Like, if you were just doing a sketch this morning, and maybe the juice right there that you are drinking was in the background, 
that would give me some insight into your process. Mm-hmm. And then maybe there's an interesting caption, maybe there isn't. Mm-hmm. Just, uh, I feel like I know Kelly Slater better now from following him on Instagram than I ever did in my youth reading thorough articles about him and watching videos about him. Absolutely. Right? Because I go on Instagram and he just gives me a glimpse of like some probiotic that he's taking or something, you know? know. And And you you try to read the label. Okay, where do I get that? And it seems banal. (laughs) You know, it's like to him it is banal, but to us... You know, I we often, want a little bit of that backstory. Yeah, that's 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 really interesting. I always thought if I was asked to interview a famous graphic designer or, or I don't know, surfer would, would be the same thing. But but some of the stuff I'd want to ask him is, um, what is what kind of car do they drive? What's their house look like? What what do they have for breakfast? Uh, what's, what's their garage look like? What's the back seat of their car look like? Or just all the stuff that gets you more about who they really are in a yep. sense of in my case like well what's your favorite typeface and you know no, exactly you know or what's your favorite font right now and just like it's you know and you probably if this was visual people could probably get a at least equal if not more information from just looking around the totally. the, the office here you know that's what your instagram should be yeah so because <laughs> the the car thing is an interesting example as you said it i remember kelly posted a video where he was filming something else, but the camera panned into his car and I saw some of the floorboards and stuff like that. And my brain, without ever thinking of it consciously until you said it, that's what my brain remembered from that. Yeah. Was seeing like, oh, his car's kind of messy. Absolutely. That's weird. Really... Why is Kelly's car yeah. messy? You know? <laughs> yeah. and it, but it gave me all it's, this insight into this guy that I venerate. Human and you can relate to and it, and it tells you a lot. And yeah, uh, yeah that, that's, that's a good example. That's what your Instagram should be. Don't And then actually avoid posting final work. Like the final work is reserved for the client and for yeah, how they're going to display it. You know yeah. what I mean? That's what yeah. I would... I think that might be the approach. Um, I, yeah, I just can't find any real rhyme or reason to it. People say, "Well, you got to be sure and do your thirty hashtags," and uh, you know, and um, that's or, one or different times of days, and, and all this all this stuff. And to me, I don't, I still don't see any rhyme or reason to it. But. Because so all of those people, they might be right, but this is like you were saying about the way that magazines developed back in the day is. They've figured out a formula, and they're sticking to the formula. I'm telling you, forego the formula. Yeah. Go with humanity. Yeah. Well, there you go. That's fine. Right? That's kind of been what I've been talking about. In, exactly. In I whole, think that's the, the key. Way. Just stick, forget the hashtag thing, forget the checking in on the numbers. Yeah. Just do, tell your story. That's yeah. what it should be. Yeah. yeah. Um, and when I do, okay, you know, a lot of times it's just kind of quick, and I do something... For, for me to sit down and, and actually type something in or a long story is, is quite a commitment. But the few times I have, I always get some nice responses like, wow, thanks for the backstory. Or I had no idea there was actually a story behind that. Or, and, I, and those register, I think, wow, okay, this, somebody enjoyed that or they got something out of it. And, and then it makes it worth it for you. Whether the followers grow does, or not, it does. That's now it's worth it for you. Yeah, because I remember those comments. I don't remember how many like something else got anonymous hits or or something so yeah that's a good point you're doing a collaborative project with album surfboards yep what was the impetus for that well i saw a i was down in the caribbean and i saw a a feature on surfline where they test some boards and uh 
And one of the boards is, is, is a friend of mine, Evan Geiselman, or actually maybe it's Eric. I get them mixed up. Evan's the goofy, younger. Yeah, Eric, Eric's the older. Eric, Eric came down to my house in the Caribbean and hung out for for a week or so. And great guy, great surfer. And um, anyway, he was testing one of these boards, and it was this weird orange thing with a big X on it and asymmetric nose. And I've ridden asymmetrics over the years, um, starting in. In Cocoa Beach with Carl Ekstrom and uh, one of his, and later writing one at uh, the, from Infinity Surfboards, the shaper Steve Bainey made me, wrote it for some, uh, anyway, different contests and things. But So anyway, this, this uh, feature showed uh, Eric Geiselman and this, uh, riding this orange board, and, uh, and I'd never seen an asymmetric nose. I'd seen an asymmetric tail, but I, and I thought, well, that's, bizarre and I have a long kind of a long history of working with Richard Kenvin and uh, Hydronamica and, and some of his early mini Simmons uh, two fins and then trying them with three fins and four fins and kind of worked my way uh, down for the last five or six years or, or longer with those and all of a sudden here was something I hadn't seen or heard about and uh, more importantly maybe the guy uh, Eric Pig said that it was his, his favorite, and he seemed to be surfing really good on it. And based on that, I got a hold of album and said, hey, I'm really curious. Uh, I'm down in the Caribbean. Is there a chance you could send me one of these? And just, uh, you know, I got a 510, and I said, just just do it like the colors in the, the one on the picture. That looks fine. Or No, I think his was red. And I said, well, I don't know, make it orange. <laughs> it's different. <laughs> um, and, and that was it. So they, he sent me a board down the Caribbean, and... I've never been so impressed with the color work and attention to detail of a board, number one, when I when I got it down there. I can still remember opening it and just being kind of blown away at the, you know, he, he's got a history of, or a background of graphic design and it shows the attention to, you know, the X wasn't, it was, wasn't perfect, it was ragged and the, the logo placement and all these things as a graphic designer, I really, really appreciated and I think nobody does better. And then on top of it was this really high-performance surfboard, and uh, uh, just was a great, great mix for me. How did and the board go? Really, really well. And uh, I think what struck me is how uh, how easy it was to adapt to it. it was, it's nothing weird. You don't you don't have to learn to ride an asymmetric. I mean, you can ride them a little shorter maybe than you do, but it just felt natural and yeah. not forced or awkward or something. I had to figure out. It just was extremely uh, easy to to uh, adjust to and since then I've, I've got three more yeah. <laughs> and uh, really really happy with their collaboration and now he's building boards for, for Josh Kerr and uh, I don't know if we can say it but a little summer fun board for Philippe Toledo little fish and uh, so yeah just a great combination of me if somebody gets the the performance aspect, uh, all hand done, not done in some anonymous factory, but done, you know, right <laughs> near where they're shaped. And uh, I like that aspect too. It's real, it's high performance, and the graphic design of the color and logo placement and fin design and all that is, is the best I've seen. What's the collaboration that you guys are doing together? Well, it's what I bring to it is a, a visual sensibility, I guess. So we're based on writing uh, the asymmetrics 
uh, down in the Caribbean on this long right point break. I've given him some feedback on on the boards, but my combination or um, my contribution is more the color scheme that I think hasn't been is something we haven't seen on surfboards and and uh, had some fun and they've been super open to experimenting with some some pretty out there color ideas. So that's that's basically what it is. Very cool. Yeah. Um, you were talking about logo placement from my earliest surfboard experiences that was hugely important to me where <laughs> even if it was the exact same board depending on where the logo was placed made me feel like it was a different the board had different dimension to it it made the contours look different it made and then i in turn felt like it would surf differently you know, it's it's funny how moving a logo from one place to the other makes the dimensions Absolutely. shift. Absolutely, I've got a board like that, and in, in, down in the Caribbean where I think the logos are wrong, and it's only a five ten, and it feels like it's a foot bigger, and I can't. Right. I'm always looking at trying to figure out. Wait, this is no bigger than this other board. Why do I feel it's bigger and stranger? And uh, absolutely we're, we're it's a visual weird. culture and we're yeah absolutely the logo placement is huge and uh you know the color of the fins and how yeah, all of that it plays into it and uh to yeah, the point and it's also what keeps what keeps it just such a cool creative sport you know you yeah. can change all that stuff you can do what works for you it's you know when you were saying that it's like you know you wash your car it runs better you know no question you know it's the same thing you got the stickers and the color somebody paid attention to and uh, uh just it just works better yeah, no question it's, it's really interesting um you just kind of made reference to it but it really seems like your current lifestyle is about as idyllic as i've ever seen for a kid who grew up sitting in math class, daydreaming about tropical surf locales, it looks like you have secured the lifestyle right out of my childhood dreams. For anyone who hasn't seen your spread in the Caribbean, it's perched on a cliff overlooking a cobblestone-lined right-handed point break with neon blue water. Um, can you disclose the location? <laughs> <laughs> of course not. But half the people will know or figure it out. But it, it's it's. Uh, I like to say West Indies because it sounds more exotic, but also known as the Caribbean. And uh, I remember when I, I bought the house, sight unseen, basically, because I had been surfing that point a, a season before, and just amazing and uh, somebody told me there's a house for sale on that point I said no way and I happened to be cash rich at that time and uh, bought this house pretty much sight unseen and uh, n no buyer's remorse ever I've had it for I bought it in 97 so oh my gosh yeah so I've had beyond number of epic days and uh yeah, it's it's. You know, I remember when I, I was working at Surfer when I got it and I was telling Steve Hawk about it and uh he goes, well, can you see like see the break from your like your room? I said, yeah, from the bed. You can see the perfect right point break. He goes, wow, it really is a dream house. And you know, it's, it's the type of setup that as a surf kid growing up, it it would be your dream situation: a warm water, there's no drift, long right hander, predominant wind is offshore. Every season, I get it to myself. I always say, as long as that still happens, it's it's working. It, it can get crowded if it's all over surf line and some headline epic swell headed to the caribbean you know people people show up for sure it, it can get crowded but the days 
the little surprise days are coming up or going down and people aren't expecting it or don't want to make the trip but i've had so many uh, to this day and you know that's cost me some work no question and uh probably a relationship or two and uh but no no regrets that's uh you know i'm still already excited and ordering new boards for next season it, it only breaks in the winter oh, okay. so it's um maybe that's not 100 percent perfect <laughs> as it might seem there's only waves in the winter but in a way that kind of works you know because i have other things going on and change of pace and then and they know that's coming around again you know there'll be another the, the six months where there could be surface coming up again and so um yeah that's and actually that that saves it if it was as consistent as some other breaks it, it probably would be more overrun and stuff so but, do you divide your time between there and southern california uh, between there and, and wherever, I'm a little bit baseless. Uh, I mean, right now it's Southern California. Uh, it's been New York, it's been Europe, Switzerland, travel a lot, still give a lot of lectures and workshops and things. Um, so right now, right now it's California, but the, the main thing is to have access to the Caribbean for the winter months right. for surprise hurricanes. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a sweet spot for sure. What is your current relationship like with surfing? Like, how often are you able to surf and all that stuff? Well, you know, it's kind of like when I when I lived in New York, <coughs> a studio in New York in Manhattan for seven years, and uh, I used to say, I don't, I didn't, wasn't surfing that often, but when I did, it was perfect conditions, and I guess that's kind of how it is now. Most of my surfing is done in the winter, because I, I go to this long right-handed point break, and uh um, and when I'm here in California, it's a little hard to get motivated to small, crumbly, crowded, cold <laughs> surf. Uh, and, and, and that's okay, you know. It's just, uh, I know it's coming. I'm already ordering boards for next season, which won't start till next fall. But I'm, I'm expecting one today, and i got a couple more coming. And so that's kind of part of the whole experience. So it just, it just works. I go out, if I go out in California now, it's too... Um, literally just just for the exercise if I happen to get a good wave or two it's great yeah. <laughs> that's a bonus but uh, uh, it's just I don't know it just it gets you through the whole year really knowing that place is there and it's waiting and there will be waves again next next season and uh, it's the new boards I'm trying and, and uh, um, yeah still experimenting with equipment you know all, whether it's asymmetrics or uh, everything's under six foot or under so still writing short words <laughs> you you um wanted to talk about your work with working with john severson and kind of his legacy well one of the things when i got first bought this house in the in the caribbean i uh one of the first people i got a hold of was john severson in, in hawaii and uh uh asked him to do a painting for me for the house i just thought oh how cool is that you know i got the surf hat and my history with surfer and just his history with the sport and so i sent him some pictures and and he did this amazing really large acrylic painting of of the spot and and uh in great great fashion he added some extra mountains because he told me he didn't want to give away where it was <laughs> which wouldn't have mattered it was just but uh but he was great to work with and he and he sent me some sketches and envelopes and things and most of those sketches i have framed or i got a couple enlarged and there's really cool stuff the little hand notes and stuff and so those are those are really special i have a a few things like that down there i have a 
a mini gun shaped by uh, Pat Curran that's but it's only like two feet long but an oh. exact replica and it's just beautiful and uh, i've seen a few of those oh done. they're carl classic. ekstrom yeah Pesman. well I, I got this from steve pesman who, who kind of gave it to me in payment for something i did for the journal one issue and uh so so anyway so john was john was great to work with i remember when i commissioned him or when i started talking to him from new york and uh what what well two things don i mean i, I just had my first son my first kid luke and uh john was the first one to know <laughs> and uh i've got a great letter from him somewhere where he welcomes luke to the world and um uh and then the other thing that struck me is he was 64 at the time and from these letters and these phone calls he was just such a surf grom i mean he was said he couldn't sleep because there were going to be waves in the morning and his board was ready and all this and i just thought wow that's possible at 64 and uh and now i know it is possible <laughs> <laughs> um but but I, that struck me it was just a, a grom at 64 it was an amazing painting he sent me and uh, but then you know some years later people would say oh gee severson must have been really really pissed off what you did with surfer magazine and I said, well, you know, I don't think I ever really heard. I, I don't know. If he was, I didn't hear about it. And then when he was having his book signing, I went to Oceanside at, at uh, the Surf Museum there, and he had, he had a signing, and I talked to him a, a bit about it. and Because uh, I had read somewhere that he really hated the redesign of Surfer, and he animately denied that. I said, no, he never hated it at all. He, he really enjoyed it. In fact, and he said the problem he had with it, with the redesign, is he felt it was too competitive with, with it was trying to compete with Surfing Magazine by what it was doing. And that at the time, you know, Surfing in the 80s was definitely the better design magazine. Um, a lot more experimentation going on and stuff. But, but anyway, he felt with the new direction of Surfer that it looked like it was trying to compete with Surfing, and he didn't like that aspect at all. I mean, those guys, I think, hated each other for, sure. forever. But it was really interesting to talk with them because we had never talked about it all these years, and he was very animate. That uh, he, he, I think he appreciated what was going on more than he might have liked it, that we were trying something different, we were trying to be a little truer to the sport, we were shaking things up a bit. I think he, he appreciated and liked that aspect of it. Um, but was very animate that he was never against the, the redesign. And so that was, it was nice to hear. Absolutely, yeah. Anyway. You mentioned your son, Luke. And I, at the beginning, was asking if your dad ever fully accepted or embraced surfing as a passion and a lifestyle and pro somewhat of a profession. Do you, uh, are your kids exploring, number one, surfing, number two, graphic design, and number three, something that you disapprove of? <laughs> well, yeah, it, it's true, and I think think back to it. I I never remember my parents really embracing surfing, uh, and only reluctantly graphic design. And I think that was when I could show them some big big name clients they knew about. <laughs> then, it, yeah. then, it, then it started to make sense to them. Um, but you know, with my kids, uh, I've got a. One's 20, one's 18, and one's two. Um, I, uh, I've always felt it's important to support them 
I mean, it's a little bit cliche, but you, you, you show them a bunch of stuff and then support whatever they choose. And, uh, and I like to think I've done that. And my son Luke is a basketball fanatic and really good player and is playing in college now. And, uh, and that's great because he found his thing. You know, it doesn't matter what it is. It's, it's that you find this thing you're passionate about and that you look forward to doing. And, and so I'm really, really happy that he found that, uh, whatever it was. And um, uh, in terms of things I don't like, they're, they're not too many. I mean, they're, they're, they're really good kids. Um, good. Although I, I just saw on Instagram that he's trying to get into a fraternity, and I was kind of horrified by that. <laughs> In my day, <laughs> we don't have anything to do with those fraternity guys. Um, Anyway, my, my daughter, Lucy, who's uh, 18, is, is uh, she is kind of a late bloomer, has, seems to be headed for the art field and has applied to a lot of colleges, got into every art college she applied for. And so I'm thinking, well, that's going to be kind of cool if she you know, goes into graphic design or something related, and that seems to be her, her thing right now. So that we'll see. You know, I, I told them I could, I could open some doors, but they've got to walk through them. They've got to, they've got to present the the right stuff or be the right person or whatever um so uh and the other son carson is his name he's two i'm not sure what he wants to do yet yeah he's although got i have to figure it out i have had him out skating surfing and uh <laughs> there might be a little push in a certain direction there <laughs> um so you just identified some value in instagram you can spy on your kids while they're yeah, away in college. Great. Yeah, yeah. I haven't liked any of the fraternity stuff. <laughs> I'm not, not. That's my rebellion. But uh, you don't have to actually like double tap it and like it, but you at least get to spy on it. Yeah, yeah. It's like really, you sure fraternity? Yeah. Oh. Um, <laughs> well, the final question for everybody interviewed is just what was the last surfboard that you rode? Well, I haven't surfed since I've been back this trip from the Caribbean, um, so I haven't been out in two weeks. So I'm trying to think what I rode the last time in the Caribbean. Probably, uh, probably the newer, uh, newest ASAM I got from from Matt, uh, largely because he he did a really interesting color thing I saw on, on somebody else's board. I said, oh, let me try one one like that. So it's a six-foot uh, twin fin on one side and a quad on the other. And still experimenting with, with fin placement and fins. And I'm looking at all my all my uh, uh, my thrusters. And some of them definitely could be used as twin fins. So I'm thinking of doing that next season is take out a lot of the middle fins and and see how they go as, as twin fins because I've got so many boards down there and a lot of some I haven't even ridden because I just I get new ones and they get pushed aside and <laughs> right but uh, I'm, I'm curious to take some of these revisit them but but minus a fin once you explore f- or get into fin exploration it's like a quiver expander it's like you thought you had three boards you start swapping fins and it's like you got a dozen boards. Yeah, really good point. I, I remember the first time I met Kelly uh, was at the Quicksilver headquarters in France, and we were just, I forget what we were doing, but sitting in the main guy's office, and all of a sudden the, the conversation ch- went to Finns, and I was just blown away at his knowledge of, of fin placement, ra- angle, rake, all that. And I think that's all we ended up talking about, and that was 
I think the first time I realized what a science set is. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know? I mean it's it's more of a kind of a feeling visual science in a way to most people, but people at, at Kelly's level here it's a it's a full science and the rake and the percentage of, and all this stuff, it was it was really something. There's science to it and there's there's also art to it though as well. Um, but I've had boards that I thought I didn't like. And then you swap out the fans and you're like, oh, turns out I love this board. Yeah. So I always worry about um, people throwing the baby out, you know, sometimes with a bathwater. Yeah, I've had the exact same experience where, where something wasn't working as a quad and all of a sudden there's a thruster. It's great or vice versa. You know, just yeah. can't get something to work and, and then, yeah, and then it's like discovering a new board. So that's kind of my new thing. I'm thinking next season maybe even ride every board again and then see how they feel and... Because uh, if there's no surf, if it's tiny, then I'm always mind surfing the waves because I'm right there. It's just, right. It's just right there. You can't sleep if it's breaking because you hear hear everything. And uh, yeah. Well, one thing that I, when I first started looking at fins, I would try a board with different types of fins, and I've gotten to the point now where I just pick a set of fins and try it on different boards. You know what I mean? To oh, kind of oh, interesting that is that yeah. not much of a factor. Because it's like, oh, I love these new John John fins from Futures or whatever. Yeah. I wonder what they're like on this board. Well, I wonder what they're like on that board. And trying to figure out what the common denominator is for the fins rather than vice versa. Yeah, I always question that when you see these these articles where they take a bunch of boards out and somebody rides, one person rides them all and then comes back and tells you what the best one is. It would have had so much to do with what waves they caught or what yeah, section exactly. or what they tried. And it seems to me that that could be a, a plus of, of the wave pool is that in that environment, you could definitely, it would seem, take out a series of boards and tell exactly how they're changed. Yep. What did that do by changing that rail thickness? What did that hard edge do? What did that fin do? Because the wave is staying the same. It seems to me that the potential to really fine tune your equipment and to really know, you know, it seems to me on those other board tests, if, if you happen to get a great wave on, on you know, set wave on, on one of the boards, it's probably going to be your favorite board, you know? Because <laughs> none of them are that radically different. It's not like they're... Uh, so, anyway, well, we'll see. You don't have a wave pool, but you have a pretty good testing ground. You I think it's pretty close. <laughs> I think it's awfully close. It's, uh, yeah. All right. Well, right on, man. Thanks so much for taking so hey, much time. Hey, thank you. Thanks for hanging out in my garage for a while. Yeah, you're <laughs> welcome. I've got a cupboard with cans of food Filtered water and pictures of you I'm not coming out until this is all SurfSplendorPodcast.com is where you can see everything that we discussed in this episode and images of where we recorded this, David's home studio and workspace. 
The Boardroom Show is where you can meet Mr. Carson along with Devin Howard, Chaz Smith, Jeff Timponi, Roger Hines, Greg Martz, Josh Martin, Dave Parmenter, M. Roca, who's been doing all these portrait illustrations for me and of our show guests, and he actually nailed a killer one with David Carson. Hopefully you've already seen that. If you haven't, surfsplendorpodcast.com, and then of course on social media, at surfsplendor. So we'll all be there at the Boardroom Show this weekend, boardroomshow.com, for advanced tickets, 10 bucks each, uh, $15 at the door. And the weekend centers around a shaping competition where you can watch some of the world's finest shapers do their thing. A lot of guys that I've actually had on this show, Matt Calvani, the aforementioned Roger Hines, they're all going to be in these glass shaping bays battling it out. It's super fun. There will be one winner at the very end of the weekend. And um, I'll have our first ever line of t-shirts and stickers, plus all that gear from Spy to give away for free. I mentioned their Happy Lens. Not only do they have this really extensive line of high-quality frames, but their Happy Lens technology is patented, and it was developed in response to the success that doctors have had treating patients who are suffering from depression with light therapy. They've determined that some sun rays are harmful, obviously. Don't make me give you that skin cancer talk once again. But the sun is also a source of life and growth. So doctors use the good light, which is long wave blue light, to treat patients in areas of low light like Seattle and Alaska. They give them this uh, long wave blue light therapy, which elevates their mood and then ultimately leads to more productivity at work and in life, happier relationships, all of that super logical stuff that you're well aware you are better at when you feel good. So Spy looked at those studies and developed this happy lens technology, which lets the good light in and blocks the bad light out. Simple as that. Super awesome. Thrilled to have them as a partner here. And you can order a frame Uh, You can order any frames off their website with the Happy Lens. You don't automatically get the Happy Lens, but you can order it with the Happy Lens. So learn more about that on spyoptic.com and uh, see happy. When you buy a pair, just use our promo code and you will directly support this show. Our promo code is podcast. Simple to remember. All right. Thank you, Spy. I will see you this weekend at the Boardroom Show, and I'll be back next week with an all-new episode of Surf Splendor. Until then, share this show with friends, get back into the ocean, share some waves, and shred on.